Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 143, Benedict VIII. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So, where are we right now in 1012 in Rome? Before we begin with today's Pope, we need to reiterate the lay of the land, especially the major Roman families who have dominated our story and the various uh, political machinations that they've been involved in. And this has been for the last 25 or so episodes. So I want to just do a brief recap of where we are and how we got here especially when we had all these quick little popes here and there, and it's not enough time to build up a full narrative arc. So if you remember from way, way back, we had a guy who took charge in Rome named Theophylact, the Count of Tusculum. His daughter, Merozia, ruled Rome after him, and her son, Albrecht II, after her. This was the Tusculani family, named after their hometown, Tusculum, where they were the counts. And they, as dictators of Rome picked the popes and ruled the popes, basically. They were the ones in charge. And some of the popes they picked were okay, if you remember. But many, especially John XII, who happened to be the grandson of Merozia, were absolutely, horribly terrible. Now, there was a rival family, too, and they've been in charge recently, and they were called the Crescensi. And they were also descendants of Theophylact, the Count of Tusculum, but they were a different branch. They broke off at the very top. And so these two rival families were the ones who were always fighting for power in Rome over the last 150 years or so. And most recently, it's been the Crescensi in control. John Crescentius was in complete control of the city of Rome and appointed the popes. And we heard about that the last couple episodes. But these popes did not like being under his control. In fact, in most of these cases, that was true, even back with the Tusculani. And often their playbook to try and get out from underneath the hand of the dictator of Rome, whoever it was and whichever family it was, was to turn to an outside power who could come in and set things right. And most of the times, that was the German king or the Holy Roman Emperor, or they were sometimes the same person. And they would call on them from the north, and they would march down, kick out the dictator, set some things right, and then go back to Germany. And then eventually, the dictator would come back, or his family would come back and take charge again. And that's kind of been the pattern over the last hundred years or so. Now, where we pick up the story right now, Sergius IV died on May 12, 1012. The Crescenzi family were still in charge, even though John Crescentius also died in early 1012, but their power was really waning. They did what the Crescenzi had always done, however. They appointed the Pope after the Pope dies. And this time, however, they were even more brazen in the past. Always in the past, there was this facade that the people or the cardinals had chosen the Pope, but really everyone knew who was strong-arming the Pope into their position. But this time, the Crescenzi said, they're not even going to call in the cardinals to consult. They're just going to appoint their guy, whose name was Gregory, to be pope. Well, this didn't go over well with the church and clergy of Rome. They had resigned themselves to the fact that this was going to be a major force in picking their pope, but there was always at least this facade of some sort of choice involved, that they got to have a say. But now when it's blatantly power play, taking it away from them, they said, no, we're not going to stand for this. And so the clergy of Rome elected instead a prominent layman whose name was Theophylactus, and he was the son of Gregory the Count of Tusculum and the nephew of Pope John the Twelfth. 
Now, in the description to this podcast, there's going to be a link to the Tusculum family tree on Wikipedia. So you can get it all straight in your head. It has it all laid out so you can figure out how all these people are related to each other. And you can see just how many popes are in this family. Theophylactus is thus the great-grandson of Merotsia and the great-great-grandson of Theophylact, the Count of Tusculum. He had two brothers, Albrecht III and Romanus. Theophylactus, like I said, was a layman, and so when he was elected, he was ordained and consecrated the Pope on May 18, 1012, and he took the name Pope Benedict VIII. Now, Benedict seems to have won out over his rival Gregory because the next thing we hear from him is that Gregory has fled Rome to go to the German king Henry II, and his plea to Henry didn't bear fruit, and he seems to just disappear from the stage after that. Henry, in the meantime, made his way south, trying to reestablish German authority in Italy, which, if you remember from previous episodes, had been tenuous after the death of Otto III. Now, he had come once before to do this. He made it as far as Pavia in 1004, but this time he was going straight to Rome, and he was going to get himself finally crowned Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope. Benedict came out to meet him along the way. He came all the way to Ravenna to greet the German king before returning to Rome to prepare the way before him. And Henry arrived in Rome on February 14th, 1014, promising to be a faithful defender of the church and was brought by Pope Benedict VIII into St. Peter's Basilica and crowned Holy Roman Emperor. Now, this is an interesting detail. A chronicler at the time tells us a great story that when the Pope handed him the orb, which, you know, is that jeweled ball with the cross on top of it you see in pictures of kings or Queen Elizabeth or something like that, he says that it is fitting that this gift be possessed by those who, trampling on this world's pomps, more readily follow the cross of Christ. And with that, Henry II sent that orb to the great Benedictine monastery of Cluny. Oh, by the way, did I mention that Henry II is actually a canonized saint and he's a Benedictine oblate? He's a really holy, uh, forceful, and good Roman emperor. He's called St. Henry the Exuberant in some places. So this is a kind of a beautiful symbol where he says, no, listen, worldly power doesn't belong to me. It belongs to those who spurn all things and follow Christ. Anyway, back to the story. Now, another cool thing happened in Rome uh, when Henry attended a solemn mass after he was crowned, he was surprised that when he was in Rome after the gospel, they didn't say the creed. You know, we all say the creed every Sunday. Uh, and it seemed like at that point, most of Europe was saying the creed every Sunday too. Everywhere else did it. Why is Rome not doing it? And the priests of Rome replied that Rome had never fallen into heresy. It was the seat of Peter and Paul after all. They don't need to say the creed every week. We live it. But he asked the Pope to intervene anyway, Henry II. And he asked to have the creed chanted at every Sunday Mass, not just on special occasions, which is what he what they did. You know, they they proclaim, okay, from now on, the creed is going to be chanted at every uh, Sunday Mass. Now, at the end of Henry's visit to Rome, unfortunately, there was some strife. A group of rebel Italians allied with the Crescenzi attacked the Germans and fought a battle on the bridge over the Tiber, the Angel Bridge, leading past Castle San Angelo. Now, they were fought off, but it would take further work by Henry and his armies to fully bring peace to northern Italy. But that peace wouldn't last long. In 1015, a Saracen noble, a man named Mujahid al-Amriri, led a naval invasion of the island of Sardinia. He was driven away by Italian forces, but he came back in 1016, and he conquered the whole island. And there's a story from a chronicler at the time that he sent a giant sack of chestnuts to the Pope, saying that each nut represented one soldier he was going to unleash on Italy. And so the Pope sent him back a bag of rice or a millet, saying, if your master is not satisfied with the damage he has already done to the dowry of the apostle, let him come again, 
and for every grain of rice he will find an armed warrior waiting to receive him. Pope Benedict followed up on his threat. He, he got the northern Italian cities to get together and drive the Saracens from Sardinia once and for all in 1017. Benedict also acted against the Saracens in Sicily and southern Italy. And with this, we have to introduce a very important set of characters to our story going forward, and that is the Normans. In previous episodes, we mentioned briefly the fact that Viking raiders had come down to Italy and had kind of gone all over Europe fighting off uh, and raiding different areas. Now, the descendants of these raiders eventually settled in northern France, which is today called Normandy, and received the name of Normans, which just means men from the north. Now, at this point, several decided to seek their fortune further south, and they were hired as mercenaries throughout Europe, but especially in southern Italy, by the kings there to fight off both the Saracens and the Byzantine Greeks, who have been working on reconquering southern Italy. A group of these mercenaries came to Rome and met with Pope Benedict, who sent them south on their way. Now, at first they started to succeed, but in 1019, the Byzantines smashed them, and they had to turn to the emperor, Henry II, for help. Now, it so happened that Benedict VIII also was planning on going to see the emperor, so they go up to Germany. Henry II had asked the Pope to come to Bamberg and to consecrate the new cathedral of Bamberg and celebrate Easter Mass with the imperial court in April of 1020. Now, while he was there, news reached the court about the fight in Sicily with the Byzantines, and the Pope convinced the emperor to come back to Italy and help fend off the invaders from the east. So in 1021, Henry II came with another large army and moved south and defeated the Byzantine armies. Now, on his way back, he stopped in Pavia, and there Pope Benedict and the emperor held a synod where they promoted the discipline of priestly celibacy, which had been waning in recent years, and admonished clerics against other abuses in the church, especially simony, which was, if you remember, the buying and selling of church offices. Now, the goal of this synod was really to reform the clergy so that they could be true witnesses of the faith. And the emperor backed up the synod's decisions with the force of law, so that you face civil penalties by breaking your priestly promises. The reforming movement of the church at this time continued to be driven by the holy Benedictine monks of Cluny. We've been talking about them for several episodes now. And the current abbot of Cluny, St. Odilio, was a very good friend of the Pope, who confirmed again and again the privileges of the Cluniac monasteries and supported their works of reform. We aren't quite at the end of the Dark Ages yet. We're almost there. But we are, when we do come to that final conclusion of the Dark Ages and the real reformation of the papacy and the church in Europe, it's going to be because of the incredible work that these holy monks in Cluny have been doing. And they are almost bearing fruit. They are almost there. Now, along with this reforming movement in the church, another movement in medieval life that the Pope promoted was called the Truce of God. The goal of this movement was to put a stop to the violent and chaotic world of feudal medieval Europe by regulating specific days when you just could not fight. These days and locations were under the truce, and if you went there or you were out and about on that particular day, the knights vowed to respect the truce. Long ago, there were the days of the Pax Romana, when most of Europe was peaceful because of the authority of the Roman Emperor, but as that decayed, things became much, much more chaotic and much more violent because petty nobles and various knights would just fight against each other all the time. That's how things worked. In reaction to this, the peace movement grew up in the late 10th and early 11th centuries in southern France. It was promoted by local monks and church leaders and was especially supported by the common people who were fed up with violence and having to be wary of some army or this uh, territory or this noble. It was a pretty good thing, and the Pope and the Emperor and the King of France, Robert the Pious, all wanted to capitalize on it. 
So in August of 1023, Henry and Robert met in northern France in the town of Mousson and created an alliance for peace, which they then decided to bring to the Pope. But unfortunately, the meeting with the Pope would not take place. Pope Benedict VIII died on April 9th, 1024. He was, it appears, a holy Pope, respected in his time, and had great reforming zeal, despite the fact that he was of the Tuscalani family and that he had been appointed when he was just a layman. We're not sure where he is buried, but most likely in St. Peter's. But before we tease next week's Pope, one final story from the history of the Abbey of Cluny. Because Pope Benedict VIII has a final last bit of his story before we move forward. He had been close friends of Cluny, as I mentioned, and apparently he appeared to John the Bishop of Porto along with two of his friends as they were walking along the way. The Pope claimed that he was still in purgatory, and he asked that St. Odilio be informed so that he could pray for him. So John, the Bishop of Porto, wrote a message and gave it to Odilio, who then proceeded to call on all the Cluniac monasteries to offer up prayers, masses, and alms for the soul of the dead Pope Benedict. Not long after this, there was said to be a figure of light followed by a host of others in white garments that entered the monastery and knelt next to Odilio. And the figure informed him that he was the Pope and that he had now been freed from purgatory and thanked him for his prayers. Okay, Pope Benedict VIII was succeeded by his brother, who will take the name Pope John Nineteenth, and we will talk about him next week. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on iTunes. Thank you and God bless.